my notes. <clears throat> Thank you, Lynn. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, I was not sure how we would do today on a holiday, uh, but thanks for coming to church. Uh, I hope it is uh, a good, good day for you guys. So um, last week we paused from our series in Luke as we uh, explored and talked about Christmas, and it was a, a great thing to do um, as we looked at just the joy that comes from our salvation coming in, in Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's been a couple weeks then since we've been in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6, even though I guess we were kind of in Luke chapter 2 for a little bit last week. Uh, but I want us to get our heads around where we were last week, last or two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we began looking at a passage of Luke called the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Plain. And we spent quite a bit of time uh, two weeks ago, and I'm going to do that a lot, say last week and mean two weeks ago, um, but we spent quite a bit of time setting the scene for this teaching. And so I kind of want to recap that a little bit because I'm sure you forgot, like I can't even remember what I got for Christmas uh, so I'm, can't, I don't expect you to remember everything we talked about two weeks ago. So the setting for the Sermon on the Plain was, was this, that Jesus gave this message to his followers. Now, we talked about this. There was the large group that followed him that were just the crowd. Then there was another large group within that group that was just his general disciples. And then right at the beginning, right before we got into the Sermon on the Plain, we see Jesus call out the twelve. And this passage is, I would say, generally speaking, to his followers, but specifically to those who are the 12. And as we looked at this last or two weeks ago, uh, what we found was that at least five, at least five of the 12 disciples were said to, in the book of Luke, have left everything. They left everything to follow Jesus. And then as we continued to move through chapter 6, we talked about how Jesus' first teaching that he gave his disciples in the book of Luke was the message that we talked about last week. It was based on four blessed statements and then the corresponding four woe statements. Now, without re-preaching the entire sermon for you this morning, the main thing that we need to remember is that Jesus was telling his disciples that they have made a good deal. That leaving everything to follow him was good for them. This was the a kind of exchange that would work out for their benefit. It was going to be worth it. So despite the lack of physical comfort they uh, may be used to having, and that, that all being gone as they left everything, all right, all the, the happiness and joy and security and even the physical comfort that they will need will be met in Christ. Now, of course, we know that this is true in the future, all right? So when we talk about the idea of the cost of following Jesus and it being worth it, it's easy to say, all right, this is going to be worth it in heaven, and we push it way, way off. But I think Jesus meant more than that. It's not just this, this uh, carrot dangling out in front of us for eternity. There is a now factor. Life is going to be better now as we follow Jesus. It just may not be better in the way that our minds think. Okay, so similarly, as he talks about this blessedness of leaving everything, Jesus gives these warnings. He gives us a warning against trusting in the things of this physical world. 
in the things that this world has to offer. Jesus says riches, food, amusement, and good reputation. These things cannot save you eternally. Additionally, what Jesus says is that our appetites for them in this life constantly grow. So if you obtain a little bit of wealth, if you obtain a little bit of comfort, what do you want? A little more. How much more? Always a little more. When you get it, what do you need? A little more. And when you get that, what do you need? Probably a lot more. I mean, somewhere along the line, that's what happens, right? So this is an insatiable desire if our appetites are set on the things of this world. All right, no matter how much we receive, if this is our goal, it will never be enough. These blessings and woes are supposed to help us as followers of Jesus begin to, to break our attachments to this false security of earthly wealth and the fleeting sense of satisfaction that comes from pursuing pleasure, passions, and comfort. None of it's going to last. It's all vanity, as Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes. Now, once these attachments are broken, we're free to take the next steps in following Jesus. So these attachments, these things that hold us back, that we keep us anchored in, in a perspective here on earth, these things let us know what our heart idols are. What are these things that we're pursuing? What do we desire most? What do we set up above everything else? These are the earthly desires that we like or love so much that they get in our way of following Jesus. They get in our way of being obedient. So I want you guys, if you would, just, just think about these attachments to these earthly pleasures, passions, and comforts. I want you to think about them as literal attachments. I want you to think about them as chains. I want you to imagine them as chains on your ankles and chains on your wrists, chains on your waist, even chains on your neck. And you're anchored to the wall behind you. That wall behind you is these physical, earthly desires. Jesus calls us to walk away from these chains that come from the pursuit of satisfaction and earthly pleasure, passion, and comfort. So before we can walk out of our prison and into obedience, our chains need to come off. So as we look at where we were two weeks ago earlier in Luke uh, chapter 6, what we can see that Jesus is saying to his disciples is something similar to this. Blessed are you who take off your chains that hold you to your old life. Blessed are you who take off your chains that hold you to your old life. Now where we go today moves us past breaking these attachments and into a life that looks like our master. Now, as we begin our, our next section where we're going to spend most of our time today in Luke 6, I want to skip ahead. I want to skip ahead to Luke chapter 6, verse 40. All right? It, this is probably the climax of the, the Sermon on the Plain. This is where Jesus is headed. So as we uh, are looking at the process, I want us to see where, uh, where we're headed so we know how to get there. So this is what Jesus says in verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So what's the goal of following Jesus? If he's our teacher, if he's our teacher, then what does he say is our goal? When we are fully trained, we will do what? 
look like our teacher. A disciple is like his teacher when he is fully trained. We are not above our teacher. Now that means we don't get to determine the outcome of our training. Who gets to determine the outcome? Jesus does. And what does Jesus say the outcome is? Being like him. He says the result of following him is that we will live like him. He is our example, and our life should look more and more like him as a result of his teaching and a result of us being shaped by his training. So he gives us sort of a two-step process. The first step is this. This is what we talked about last, or last week. Walk away from the chains of this world that attach you to the false sense of satisfaction that comes from the pursuit of earthly pleasures, passions, and comfort. Walk away from those chains. Walk away from the attachment to the pursuit of pleasure, passion, and comfort. Blessed are you, what's he say? Who are hungry, who are poor, who are spoken poorly of. Walk away from those desires. All right, take off those chains. Now, step two, what is it? Walk in the ways of our teacher, Jesus. Walk in the ways. Take off the chains and walk in the ways of Jesus. I want to reread what Lynn read for us just a moment ago. Let's look again at our passage in Luke 6, 27 through 36. This is Jesus. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Sorry, I put that question mark on there. That's a period in Jesus' words, right? Verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now, I want to look at this passage in two ways. All right, first, I want us to look at how verses 27 and 31 through 31 contrast to verse 32 through 36. So that's the first thing we're going to do. That first chunk, that first slide, it contrasts to the second chunk, which was the second slide. Second, what I want us to do is take the whole passage that we, uh, that we've been, that we read, and I want to uh, view it as an extension of the blessings and woes from the previous section. So don't expect to beat the Methodists to the restaurant today, okay? All right, so let's explore this contrast first, all right? So right out of the gate, right out of the gate, what does Jesus do? Jesus lays down a philosophy that almost seems cliche now, 
Right? So I, I, told, I told the praise team as we were praying before we came in, I was like, I'm a little nervous today. And they were like, why? What are you preaching on? And I said, well, you know, love your, love your enemy. Like, that's not something that should make you nervous. Why? Because honestly, in church, we hear it so often, it's kind of become cliche. And as it's become a little cliche, I, I'm afraid it may have lost some of its jarring power that it might have had to the, uh, to the ears of Jesus' hearing uh, the, that hurt him the first time. All right, so I, I want it to kind of jar us a little bit. So th- this command to love your enemy is quite bold. I want you to think about what an enemy is. An enemy is someone to be hated. They're your enemy, right? All right, they didn't become your enemy because they were kind and considerate, right? They, they, they're your enemies because they've offended you. They have offended your sense of justice. They have been cruel. I mean, Jesus uses the word evil, right? Maybe, maybe it's just as simple as their cultural priorities aren't the same as yours. So I'm just, just for example, just think about the, the cultural priorities of capitalism versus communism. They're very different. And just that worldview alone makes them seem at odds, right? But there are other reasons why somebody can be your enemy. They could have truly sinned against you. I mean, one of the things that's mentioned in the list here that Jesus says is pray for those who abuse you. Who could be your enemy? Somebody who has abused you, who has hurt you, who has broken you. That may be physical, maybe emotional, spiritual. Somehow, they've hurt you. And what Jesus is saying is these people who have brought offense to you, whose very existence is counter to the things that you hold dear, love them. Love them. This is not like, hey, love your enemy. You know, that guy in the cube next to you who stole your last account. Like, Yeah, I mean, it means that too. But I want us to understand that even though for many of us, we don't have these big wounds in our lives, that when we think about the idea of who this enemy might be, we have to, like, disassociate and make it the Russians. You know, like, no, it, it, it's far more close to home as well. So as much as it, it's bigger than the person who stole the account in, in your sales department, you better believe it includes the guy who stole your account in the sales department. It includes the person at work who gossips and slanders about you. It includes the slacker who doesn't get their work done, whom you have to do all their work for them so that the project gets completed. Those people are included as well. No matter who your enemy is, they're your enemy for a reason. So a command to love that person should be really annoying at best, but honestly, it could be downright offensive depending on how that person became your enemy. So Jesus clarifies this teaching with verse 32. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to you? Now, some versions use the word credit. Some versions use the word thanks. As I did my research on this word, I believe the word benefit is best. 
I think Jesus is really saying that it's for your good to love them. It's for your good to love them. Now, it's so easy for us to think that loving our enemy is really, you know, all right, we need to be kind to all people. And so if I'm kind to them, it's, it's good for them. Well, of course it's good for them for you to love them. But I think Jesus is saying something deeper than that. Jesus is saying it is for your benefit that you love them. Look at verse 35. What does verse 35 say? It says that there is a reward, a great reward for loving your enemy. Now, again, this is an eternal reward in heaven as sons and daughters of God, but there is an earthly benefit to you as well. You get to be merciful, right? God is merciful, and as we are being trained by our teacher, we should look more and more, what? Like our teacher who is merciful. So the benefit of loving our enemies is that it helps us be more and more like Jesus, who is our teacher. So when we do this, when we love our enemy, we get the benefit of being merciful. Now, we have to remember this, okay? Jesus isn't punishing his disciples by asking them to do something that they don't want to do, okay? This is not about punishment. You know, the real way to make my disciples better disciples is to make their life terrible. And one way to make their life terrible is to make them love their enemies. Like, that's not Jesus' point. Jesus is calling them into something better. And so he says, this is a better way to live. If you want to live a better life, live like me, Jesus, and love your enemy. This way of living is good for us. Do, do we believe Jesus? Do we believe him? We like the idea of loving our enemy because we know we're somebody's enemy and we want them to love us. We love the idea of loving our enemy as long as we can disassociate it from our personal struggle and make it some, uh, uh, you know, anonymous they. But when we really stop and bring it home, when we pause and identify who is our enemy, it becomes a lot harder. And Jesus leans into that moment and he says, loving them is for your good. This is not a punishment. This is a better way to live. You see, loving your enemy is some next level stuff for followers of Jesus. Okay? This is where we really shine as followers of Jesus. Jesus says that the world will know we are his disciples by our love. Now, here's the thing, okay? You can't really expect to be able to love your enemies when you are still wrapped up in the pursuit of earthly pleasures, passions, and comfort. I'm going to say that again, all right? You can't really expect to be able to love your enemies when you're still wrapped up in the pursuit of earthly pleasures, passion, and comfort. Now, let me give you an example of, of why I say that. I'm going to take you guys to 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says this. If anyone says, I love God, 
and hates his brother. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, John lets us know that some aspects of our faith are interdependent, even if we want to divide it. All right, some aspects of our faith are interdependent even if we want to divide it. All right, we may think we can love God while we hate our brother, okay? But if we can't even love our brother whom we can see, then how do we think we'll ever be able to love a God whom we can't see, right? But our love for God, accompanied with the whole work of the Holy Spirit, empowers us to love our brother. And then here's the thing. So how do we love our brother? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the presence of God's love in our life. Now, how do we prove that we love God and that, we, that the Holy Spirit is at work in our life? All right. By the way, we what? Love our brother. The proof of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life is the fact that we can and do love our brother. Do you see how these things are interdependent? They're interdependent. You can't love God if you hate your brother. How do you love your brother? Well, by loving God. Now, how do we prove we love God? By loving our brother. These things work together. I think Jesus is making a very similar point in Luke chapter 6. Aspects of our faith are interdependent. How will we ever love our enemies if we are still wrapped up in the defense of our earthly pleasures, passions, and comforts? If we're going to maintain these earthly priorities, then they have to be defended. Okay, if I'm going to have earthly priorities of riches, of wealth, of comfort, of pleasure, if I'm going to have them, then they have to be fought for. They have to be defended. Now, here's the thing. The second they're defended, you are taking an opposing side to the person who is violating the thing that you value. What does that make them? An enemy. When I am defending a set of values, when I am defending my pursuits, my priorities, my passions, my comfort, when I am defending these things, then anyone who opposes them is my enemy. Now, let me see if I can give you guys an example of, of what I'm, I'm talking about here. This is a very domestic example, okay? I think in your lives you will probably be able to think of other things that are far more consequential than this. But I also think this is something that each and every father in some way or another can experience. My children are in this room. I love you girls. This is not meant as an attack on you. This is meant to display your father's poor character. Okay, now at some point today, I'm going to watch the Chiefs game. Can I get an amen? All right, now I'm, I'm recording it, all right? So don't text me spoilers, okay? All right, now at some point today, while I am watching this game, I can tell you what's going to happen. One of my children is going to ask me to do something for them that they can do themselves. Okay? It's inevitable. It's going to happen. Now, this has been a week of family time. 
the way we arranged our days off through the Christmas break. I haven't had to be in the office all week, so thank you all very much for not having to be in the office all week. So we have prioritized family time. We have prioritized home projects. I've done a lot of chores this week. We've prioritized visiting with friends and family. But I have taken very little time this week to just do what I want to do. And you know what I want to do? Watch the Chiefs game, right? All right, this is my me time, okay? Watching the Chiefs game is my me time. Now, there's a phrase that has been grating on Elise's nerves for an eternity that has become contagious, and now I hate it as well, all right? She hates the phrase, you deserve whatever comes next, or I deserve whatever comes next. Let me tell you, I deserve some me time, right? Now, I deserve some me time. Now, what does that mean when I say that? It's mine. And if it's mine, and it has that level of value to me, then it has to be defended. And what happens when somebody opposes what is mine? They become the... Are you connecting the dots? Okay. Now, do I really want to treat my children like they're the enemy? <laughs> we will pray for you. No, of course. Thank you, Bill. We needed that, right? So, uh, no, we don't want to treat our kids like they're the enemy, right? Of course not. So, but now here's, here, I know where your brains are going. I know what you're thinking. Does that mean we just tell our kids yes to everything? Of course not. Of course not. Of course not. Okay? But, but here's what I need you guys to understand. When we tell them no, and we should tell our children no regularly, okay, we should be telling them no for their benefit, for their good. Even if that good is you need a healthy dad, right? Who needs a break? But at the end of the day, it should be about their good, right? Not a defense of what I'm entitled to. Because if I'm entitled to it, then all who oppose it are the enemy. And we have been called, we have been called as followers of our teacher, Jesus, to love our enemy. Now, I set that in this gentle, funny little scenario of life at home because I think we can all relate to that in some form or fashion. But you know how that shows up in your life. It shows up in far more complicated ways than, see, I can hit a pause button and get up and do what my kid needs for a minute, right? It shows up in far more complicated ways in our real life. Those people who set themselves against us who desired their own personal pleasure, passions, and comforts above ours. They set them against ours, and they take from us. It, it, this relationship now is happening at my expense. And Jesus says, love your enemy. Now, I want you to, to look back at that, uh, what, who this enemy is. All right, let's look at who this enemy is. Look again at uh, chapter 6, verses 27 through 31. 
It says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Now, he kind of expounds on that as he moves through the rest of the passage. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. To the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do to them uh, do so to them. All right, now I want to put this into a list for you. So do we have that list? That, all right, I want you to see this in a list. All right, he says, do good to those who what? Hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Turn the other cheek to the one who hits you. Give more to the one who robs you. So who's your enemy? Your enemy are those who hate you, curse you, abuse you, hit you rob you. I mean, he helps us define it. This is not the person who comes in and interrupts your football game, okay? Though it should be included. <laughs> All right, so what, what's, what's the point that, that Jesus is making? This is hard. This is really, really hard. And it's hard because... We want to be liked. It's, it's hard because the idea of a curse on us is unsettling. No one wants to be abused. No one wants to be hit. We like our health. No one wants to be robbed. We value our stuff. We worked hard to get it. So we have this value on this stuff. And as we overvalue this stuff, when it's gone, the person who took it from you is your enemy. This is why Jesus and why Luke points out that the disciples have left everything. What we need to begin to understand is they are devaluing their attachments to these things. They are not viewing them as things that they deserve. So that when they are taken, they don't feel cheated. You are able to turn that other cheek when you love the guy who hit you on this cheek. When you say, all right, I'm not necessarily entitled to my physical health. I'm just reading what's there, guys. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. I really want to take a deep dive into that, but I, I'm too distant from it. But I just want you to know it's there. The one who's desperately mistreated you. What are we called to do as followers of Jesus? Pray for them to find a way to love and forgive them. That doesn't mean you can't... Listen, there's like 10 other sermons that should be preached around the exceptions, okay? Where I could talk about stewardship, where I could talk about self-defense, the defense of others. Like, we could make the list of caveats. But does Jesus put those caveats in here? No. Why? He wants us to deal with it. 
This is uncomfortable and hard. Let it be uncomfortable and hard. Let it push you. That's the whole point. All right. If I clean this up and trace these verses to all the exceptions, then you're going to walk out and say, yeah, loving your enemy is pretty easy. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is this is really hard. How hard? Pray for the one who abuses you. Bless those who curse you. Turn the other cheek. And this one blows my mind. Could you just imagine being held up? All right. All right, hey, give me your wallet. All right, so give him my wallet. And he starts like, hey, bro, bro, here, you, for, you forgot this. You know, like, could you imagine that? Like, that, that's what, he's trying to show this is really hard. This is really hard. And it's for our good. Let's look again at the, the last half of the passage in verses 32 through 36. It says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Okay, that makes sense, right? Uh, It's easy to love people who love me. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. I just love that sentence, right? Even sinners lend to sinners, right? Like, it just seems so snarky and sarcastic, right? To get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the who? To the ungrateful and the evil. He is kind to those who don't deserve it. Be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Be like your teacher. That's what it says in verse 40, right? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Verse 35 says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Verse 36 says that we should be merciful to others because our Father is merciful. I am not good at this, all right? I am not up here preaching this as someone who has mastered this. Next week, we're going to look at the pitfalls of being judgy, all right? I I can be pretty judgy. I can be selfish, greedy, and I often find myself defending my own pleasures, passions, and comforts. But, But just as I struggle to do that, all right, just because I struggle to do that does not mean that God's word makes any allowance for it. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's okay. This was a particularly hard sermon to write because I saw as I was uh, writing this just how much I love myself. And I was convicted by how much I love myself and was slow to show love to those who would take advantage of me. But we, we cannot, we cannot sit here and think just because it's hard, why bother? Instead, we need to look back to what we saw 
two weeks ago. And we're going to read those blessing statements in just a minute, all right? But before we read that passage again, there is a lie that we have to wrestle with, and it's a big one, okay? It's a lie from the devil that God is taking something good from us and giving us something worse in exchange. It is a lie from the devil that our pleasures, passions, and comforts will satisfy our hearts. And it is a lie from the devil that God wants us unhappy apart from these earthly priorities. Now with that in mind, let's look again at these blessings that are mentioned earlier in chapter 6, starting in verse 20. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now remember, as we looked at this word and we looked back to what we talked about when we did the Christmas story back in September, what did we learn about this word blessed? The word blessed is the same word as happy. It's the same word as happy. The truth is that God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be happy according to his definition of happiness and not ours. He knows what is truly good. He knows that holding too tightly onto our earthly priorities will deprive us of joy in the long run. He knows that true happiness comes from believing in Him. True happiness comes from following Him, from living like Him. And true happiness comes from loving like Him. This is why, hear me, this is why the gospel is good news to the poor. The gospel of Jesus says that you can know joy apart from riches and wealth. Can I please get an amen? You do not have to be wealthy and well-fed to find joy. Do you believe that? You do not have to be wealthy and well-fed to find joy. Joy is found in salvation in Jesus Christ. Joy is found in becoming more and more like our master, Jesus. That's where the joy is. It's found in loving like him. It's found in being merciful like him. It's found in being generous like him. This makes me want to go back and like pre-re-preach the whole sermon from two weeks ago, but I won't even though it's really tempting, all right? I just want to make a couple of of references to verses that we read last week. Our Father is abounding in steadfast love. And it says in that passage in Psalms that he is quick to forgive. Like it said in Isaiah, though we were like scarlet, he has made us white as wool. That's how much he loves us. And resting in that should bring us joy. Listen to to one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It comes from Romans 5. This is one of the many passages in Scripture that fit into my top 10. Don't ask me to put 10 in there because there's like 30. But this is is one of them. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were, what church? Enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Man, this is another time I want to just preach a whole other sermon, breaking down these verses, and I won't today. All right, but quickly, what I want you to see is that Paul echoes the same reasoning that Jesus does in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says that an unbeliever will do good things when it makes sense to do them. Paul says, sure, people will die to save a good man, right? But Jesus will die for his enemy. In other words, Jesus loved his enemy to the full measure. And that's what Paul is pointing out in verse 8. Jesus loved us, his enemies. And he has called us to be like him, to be like our teacher. We are not above our teacher. If he loved his enemies, then what? So should we. Because when we are fully trained, we will be like him. And look at how Paul ends this passage. He says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, it is to our benefit and to our good to love our enemies because this is how we become like our teacher. And this is how, from that joy, that we get to show mercy and grace to others because we've experienced it, because we know what it is to be an enemy of God and to be loved by him anyway, it is because we have received that that we can love the way he has loved. Man, it doesn't make it any easier though, does it? Loving our enemies is hard. I called it second level stuff earlier. I called it second level because it, it's so much easier to love others when we begin to let go the illusion that pursuit of pleasure, passion, and comfort will ever satisfy. When we set those things aside, when we leave those chains behind as we follow the teachers and walk in his ways, then, then we can be equipped to love others as Christ loved us. So this is our invitation today. Our, our response to the teaching today is this. I want to ask you some questions. What are the earthly priorities that you consistently find yourself defending? What are they? Think about them. Where do you find yourself planting your flag and saying none shall pass? How do you make others your enemy by defending the things that you say you 
deserve. Do you ever find yourself only showing love when it's convenient and easy? So, so what came to mind? Don't answer. All right. For me, I, I defend my time. That is the place that I tend to plant my flag. I also defend a, a need to be respected. God has been working on me in those two areas all week as I worked through this text. But, but what is it for you? What's the cloak that someone has tried to take from you? And then what's the tunic that you knew God was asking you to give after they took your cloak? Who's abused you? And who has done an injustice to you? How is God asking you to pray for them? Who's the last person on earth you want to do good to? And how might God be prompting you to do good for them? Doing these things for those who love you is easy. Even non-believers do that. But Jesus loved us and gave his life for us while we were his enemies. So my question is, how is God calling you to love your enemy today? As the praise team comes, would you guys pray with me? Lord, this is a tough message for us to chew on. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just work on our hearts. Help us not to be blind to the way that we make those in our spheres our enemy. Father, reveal to our hearts the way we have prioritized our earthly pleasures, passions, and comforts. Lord, help us to let those things go, to walk away from those chains that keep us tied to this world. Help us, Lord, to love the way you loved us, sacrificially, for us when we were opposed to you, dead in our sin. Lord, as we know the grace and mercy that we've experienced from you, help us to show that grace and mercy to others as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we